Hello, I'm Pastor Marshall Oaks, and I'm the lead pastor at Red Hills Church in Tallahassee, Florida. And you're about to listen to a message from our Sunday morning gathering. If you enjoy what you hear, please leave us some feedback on iTunes. And if you really like what God is doing at our church, consider supporting the ministry work at redhillschurch.com give. Thanks, and now for some Bible teaching. Last week, we went through Revelation chapter uh, 6. We started going through the seven seals, and we looked at how the first five seals are mirrored in Matthew 24, verses 5 through 14. John sees this vision of things are going to start taking place, and Jesus tells his disciples before the vision that John gets that these are the things that are going to take place. So we see it in two different places, and they're, they're mirrored very closely. And so what we start to see is this pattern that as Jesus, the Lamb of God, takes his authority in heaven after his resurrection, he starts his rule and reign over the nations of the earth, and he starts enacting the Father's end time plan to bring history to a close. He starts breaking these seals. And as he is demonstrating his authority over the nations, the nations reject that authority and it releases trials on the earth. Trials in the form of uh, imposters rising up everywhere you look, um, trials in the form of wars, famine, death, martyrs. And what we walked away with after the first five seals was this idea that as Christ starts exercising his authority over the nations and the nations are rejecting the trials that are released because of him exercising his authority in the nations, rejecting serve in a way as a warning sign of what is to come. Wars, no good. People dying, church believers being martyred and killed. None of that stuff is good, but it is nothing compared to what is coming. It is tribulation, but it is not the great tribulation. There's a period of time coming where God is going to blow trumpets and pour wrath out on the earth. It is coming. It is not a thing that might happen. It is a thing that will happen. And what we talked about last week is how the early church writers, they wrote in a way that every moment following Jesus' resurrection seemed to be this time of the last days. So if we're living in the last days and Jesus is talking about these things that would transpire and these seals are being broken, it seems to me if you're just following John's vision and you're following the, the, the themes from Matthew 24, that some of these seals were probably broken as Jesus ascended and these things have been present in the church age, but we haven't gotten all the way through it. So as we're reading through these things, I think that the seals, at least the first five, and what Jesus talks about up to verse 14, is true of the church age. And it would explain some of the things that we're seeing in the world today. Why are all these things, why are things falling apart? It's because the lamb is exercising his authority over this earth and the earth wants nothing of it. That's why you're seeing, this is why there's wars, this is why there's famine, because man thinks that they know better than God. That's why this is happening. But there's this pause in Jesus' teaching from Matthew 24, right around verse 14, he starts getting into, right up to seal five, then he starts talking about this figure of the Antichrist. Not Antichrists that will rise up during this period, but Antichrist, the personification of this man who rises up and 
consolidates power all around the world into one person. He seems to be filled with what is the most simplest form of demonic power, probably Satan himself, and he deceives the nations. And out of that, we're told from Jesus' mouth that there will be these false prophets that rise up and they will perform these miracles and there will be this perception across the earth that the God has come down in human form and we need to follow what this guy says. And then Jesus gets right back into what he's talking about at the end of Matthew 24 about the things that will happen next. And he says that at that point, after this period of the Antichrist coming up and deceiving the nations, then there will start to be cosmic powers being shaken. There'll be earthquakes, the sun, the moon, stars are gonna fall from the sky. And that mirrors seal six, which seems to be the very beginning of the end. It's a seal that when it's broken, we're coming into the very, very last days. Now traditionally, if you compare texts from Matthew and you're just trying to get a sense for this, historically the church has always believed that the great tribulation will be this period of seven years. And so if I'm just trying to do some rough math, it seems to be that the church age would be probably the first five seals. Then when the Antichrist rise up, that seems to be probably the beginning of what would be known as the Great Tribulation. That lasts for a time, times, and half a time, three and a half years. That's what Daniel says. And then all of a sudden, these cosmic powers start shaking. And then we get into what would be the last, last days, the last three and a half years where God starts announcing his judgment on the nations. Time is up, guys. I've given you time to serve me. I have the authority. I'm the only one worthy and you want nothing of me. And so it's time to suffer judgment. I've given you my, my people to spread my gospel. And what did you do when they showed up? You killed them. My people showed up to give you good news and you murdered them. You don't want any part of me and my kingdom. And so I'm going to, because I'm just and righteous, I will pronounce judgment on the earth. And those judgments come in the forms of trumpet judgments and wrath bowl judgments. We'll get into that in the future. But if you're just asking me, what, Marshall, what is, what is your sense of how things are gonna go along? I, I think we're in that period where the first five seals have probably broken. It's a sense that across the world there is a warning that things are going to get worse and it is an invitation to come out from under what that looks like. But the next thing we're looking for is somebody to rise up and say, guys, I've got all the answers, follow me. And this guy is gonna infiltrate the church, he's gonna deceive many, and it is gonna be the beginning of the end. I think that that's the next thing we're looking for. Now, will we see it in our lifetime? I don't know, but I think as your pastor, I think, I feel it is my responsibility to at least prepare us in a mindset so that we will be ready for that stuff whether we see it or we don't see it. You, you, you follow me? There is an urgency that I feel as a pastor to prepare the, peel, the people for what the Bible tells us is coming even though you might not see it in your lifetime or your grandkids' lifetime. There is a sense of urgency that the early church lived with that we have lost and we need to find it again. That's why we're doing this. So today, as we get into Matthew chapter seven, we're gonna start the very end of the seals and we're gonna get just briefly into the trumpets. Trumpets will be next week. So today, Revelation chapter seven is the seventh seal. But before we get into the seventh seal, there is this interlude from the vision. 
Now, this is pretty common in prophecy in the Old Testament. You have got the prophet seeing these things, and then the vision stops, and then something completely transforms. And that thing that transforms is often used as context clues to kind of um, clarify what he's seeing or give some more context to the vision that came before or the vision that's about to come next. Essentially, John is using this same tool as he's communicating what he saw and how Jesus gave the vision. This is nothing new. This is how the, old, the prophets of the Old Testament saw visions. This is how the prophets of the New Testament saw visions. This is how John is communicating. So what we're seeing here is he sees this vision of these six seals, and then all of a sudden it breaks. And then we're going to see this new vision. John is going to hear and see something new in chapter 7, and then he's going to get right back into the seven trumpet, or the the seventh seal and going into the trumpets. And we're going to see this again at the end of the trumpets, right before the seventh trumpet. There's going to be this interlude, and there's going to be this context about what's happening on the earth, and there's this dragon and this beast and the false prophet. But we need to understand the pattern and the repetition and the way that things go through the book to help us understand that these things are all not exactly chronologically. Sometimes they span real wide so we can see the end from where we're standing so it can give us hope so we don't lose hope because things look like they're getting bad. And then they zoom back in and then they zoom wide and things are referenced from before. And this is the thing that's gonna happen in the future. But before we get there, I need you to know this thing right here. This is how prophecy works. If you don't like it, I guess don't read Revelation, which is probably why the church has stopped reading Revelation. Let's, let's just go through history. Like, let's just go through 1 Samuel. Like, historical books are literal. They're time-oriented. They're chronological. One thing happens, then another thing happens. But that's not how prophecy works. Prophecy is vision. It stirs your soul. It's more than just words that communicate a truth. It is a word picture that, that drives deep on the inside of you and stirs you to some kind of action. So that's what we're doing today as we get into Revelation chapter 7. So we're about to get into the seventh seal, but before we do that, we have an interlude before the seventh seal comes, and this interlude is about the people of God, okay? This 144,000. So uh, if you're Jehovah's Witness, you're hoping that you're one of them. (laughs) But I'm guessing there's no Jehovah's Witnesses in here. (laughs) Revelation chapter 7, let's get into verse 1. It says, after this, so this doesn't mean that after this chronologically, it means this is the next thing I saw. This is the next vision. After this, I saw four angels, and they were standing at the four corners of the earth, and they were holding back the four winds of the earth, that no wind might blow on the earth or the sea or against any tree. And then I saw another angel ascending, from the rising of the sun with the seal of the living God. And he called with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm the earth and the sea, saying, do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. Pause. So John pivots In this vision, from the previous vision, we've got six seals. The last thing that's said at the end of the last seal is this is the great day of the Lord's wrath. It has come. Who can stand? And then immediately that question gets answered. Who can stand? And Jesus says, let me show you who can stand. And he sees this vision of these four angels holding back the winds of the four corners. Now, what does that mean? 
Well, that's, that's Old Testament prophecy, and we've been using this imagery of the database to kind of communicate this idea that there are, there are, there's information back in the Old Testament that informs everything we're supposed to see in the New Testament. That the history didn't, the story didn't just start when Jesus was born. The story's been going for a long, long time. And I've heard from some of you that maybe you're kind of getting tired of me hearing, saying the word database, that I say it too much. So I'm gonna use a different word, library. <laughs> you like that? Because this book is a library. There's 66 books in it. So it's not just a book. It's not just one book. It's a library. So John is pulling from the library. You like that? Is that better? Some of you are like, just like, man, I work in Excel all day. You say database. I know what you mean. And some of you are just like, please don't say database. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm, in, I'm, I'm in computer programming. I don't want to hear database when I come to church. All right, library. So he pulls from the library, and what we're told from the Old Testament in Isaiah 11, 12, Ezekiel 7, 2, Jeremiah 49, 36, Daniel 8, 8. You don't have to write all this down. My notes will be posted online after the sermon. You can go back and look at them later. But these are all references in the Old Testament to when we are told that the four corners of the earth is symbolic of saying the whole earth. When, when someone, when a prophet would say, do, the Lord said to do this over the four corners of the earth, or he's going to call his people from the four corners of the earth, he's talking about the entire earth, the whole thing, all of it. So when he starts seeing this vision of these angels holding back the wind at the four corners, essentially what he's seeing is these angels who are told, do not do this thing on the earth until the Lord tells you that it's okay to do this thing. Now, what is this thing? This thing is bring judgment. Wind, in this context, is symbolic of the coming judgment. Now, how do we know that? Well, because he says it in verse 1, that the wind would not blow on earth, sea, or tree. And then he says in verse 3, that this wind would come and blow and harm the earth and the sea and the trees. That's important as far as reading your Bible, because a lot of times you can interpret within context because of the things that came before, the things that come after. A lot of times folks have asked me, it's like, well, how do, you, how do you rightly interpret the Bible? Well, here's my answer. Let the Bible interpret itself. Okay? You don't need to inject your interpretation into it. You don't need to think, well, when I think wind, I think like Panama City Beach and then like having to, you know, all these, these drunk people who are listening to terrible country music and the wind is carrying it and it's ruining my vacation. So when I think wind, no, no, it doesn't matter what you think about wind. It's what the Lord thinks about wind. And the context within this context of what wind is, is it's the punishment coming on the earth. So what he's saying is, I want you to hold back the punishment from the entire earth. None, no punishment comes on the earth until what happens? Until the Lord seals who his people are. Why? Why is the Lord needing to seal his people before the judgment comes? Because the judgment won't touch his people. That's why. Because biblically, seals mark ownership and protection. When God marks something, he says, that thing's mine. 
I'm marking it with my name. It has my seal, so it belongs to me. And because it belongs to me, the things that I'm gonna pour out as judgment on the earth aren't gonna touch those things that belong to me. Now, what's the context from this? Is there any library reference for this? Well, I'm glad you asked, because there is. Ezekiel chapter, uh, Ezekiel, uh, chapter nine tells the story of uh, Jerusalem about to fall. Ezekiel isn't there, he's over in Babylon. He was taken with some of the first deportation, but he, he is getting visions of what the Lord is gonna do, and he knows that there is coming a time of judgment in Jerusalem. In 586, Babylon comes in and completely destroys the whole city, and Ezekiel sees this vision of a man clothed in linen. Have we seen that anywhere? Yes, Revelation, we've seen Jesus described as a man clothed in linen. We see this man clothed in linen told to go through the city of Jerusalem and mark on the forehead all of those who are mourning for the sins of Jerusalem. So the people who don't care about the sins of Jerusalem, who are just doing their regular things and kind of working through their normal day, they don't really care what God is up to, they're not convicted of their own personal sin, these aren't my people. Who are my people? My people are the ones who are broken up over the fact that the city is about to fall because of the sins of the people. So Ezekiel sees this vision of a man wrapped in linen who goes through the city and marks people who are mourning over sin with the mark of God, and those people are commanded to not be touched by God's judgment when it comes. It happens again, well, that, that's actually um, uh, around 586, but if, if you back up in the library and you go to the time of the Passover, there's this period of time where the people in, uh, the people of Israel, they're not Israel yet, but they're the people of God and they're uh, in the land of Egypt being treated as slaves and they're crying out to God for salvation. And God sends these seven plagues. You'll see that theme replayed in the trumpets and the bowls. But God sends these, these 10 plagues over Egypt and the 10th plague is this Passover event. And what the people of God are told to do is to mark the outside of your door that you belong to God and when the judgment comes, it will pass over your door, won't touch you. There is precedent in scripture for God's people persevering through God's judgment, but not being touched by God's judgment. You see this uh, in the time uh, of Egypt, now, during the time of Passover, the first couple plagues hit the entire nation, but by the time you start getting into the early middle parts of the plagues, we're told that the Israelites, the Jewish people, the Hebrews, they lived in a land called Goshen just outside the city, and when the plague started hitting Egypt, guess what? They weren't hitting Goshen, which only stirred the anger of the people against God's people. Because our entire city is in blackout, but I can see that you guys have lights. I've got frogs in my oven, they're in grandma's bed, but you don't have frogs anywhere. Do you see how this works? This is the precedent, and this is what's happening in this vision. God is telling his angels, do not release judgment on the earth until my people have been sealed so the judgment doesn't touch them. Now before the judgment comes, God marks his people and they aren't touched with his judgment, but it doesn't necessarily protect them from the work of the enemy. 
Because we're told in Revelation 5, 9 through 10, that the voice of the martyrs have been crying out to God, how long are you gonna let the nations kill us for our faith? So the people of God during the great tribulation are spared the wrath of God, doesn't touch them, but they aren't spared the wrath of the nations who come and murder them for their faith. That will actually be stored up in the wrath of God against the nations at a later date when he pours out his wrath. Troy, will you cut the air conditioner for me? I'm seeing some people start to shiver. I feel good, but I just want you to know how much I love you. So what we're seeing here is the answer to the question of verse 17 from chapter six, who can stand? The answer is that the mark sealed people of God can stand. When the wrath of God starts being revealed and the cosmic power starts shaking and the stars in the sky start falling down to the earth, the nations, the leaders of the nations, the poor, the rich, the old, everybody, every ethnicity, everybody who doesn't trust the lamb runs to the mountains and tries to hide themselves in the mountains. They cry out in the mountains, fall on us, hide us. But who's not there? The people of God. The people of God are not crying out to creation to save them because the lamb has saved them. So that's the vision that we see. Now the question is, who are these people? Who are these folks who get sealed on their forehead, which is important as we get for, uh, move forward through the book, because we're gonna find that there's another group of people who are sealed on the forehead and the hand, and those are ones who worship the dragon, the beast. They get the mark of the beast. But these folks, they aren't marked with the beast, they're marked by the lamb. So who are these people? Let's continue reading, going to verse four. It says, I heard, that's important, come back to that minute. He said, I heard the number of the sealed, 144,000, sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. There were 12,000 from the tribe of Judah, 12,000 from the tribe of Reuben, 12,000 from the tribe of Gad, 12,000 from the tribe of Asher, 12,000 from the tribe of Naphtali, 12,000 from the tribe of Manasseh, 12,000 from the tribe of Sibion, 12,000 from the tribe of Levi, 12,000 from the tribe of Issachar, 12,000 from the tribe of Zebulun, 12,000 from the tribe of Joseph, and 12,000 from the tribe of Benjamin were sealed. I'll pause there. John heard the number of those who were sealed, the 144,000. Now there is great debate in the church, it's been raging for as long as the church has been the church, about who these people are and what these numbers mean. There are two prominent views to take when trying to interpret what this text means. The first interpretation is that this is a literal group of people that these are 144,000 literal Jews who sometime will get sealed during the period of the tribulation or right before, they'll get sealed by God, they won't be touched, they will be the only ones on the earth who are witnessing to God because the church has been raptured out, they're not here, these Jews are the only witness on planet earth about the testimony of the Lamb. 
That is a literal interpretation, and it is literally Jewish people, and it is literally 144,000. The other interpretation is that it is symbolic. And I told you last week that there are four kind of main ways to read the book of Revelation. You can read it as past, everything's already been fulfilled. You can read it as history, that all these things are taking place throughout church history. Uh, you can read it as future, or you can, uh, that all these things are gonna happen in the future. Most of us, w we won't see. And you can read it as symbolic, that these numbers and these pictures stand for other things. I didn't tell you last week where I kind of fall on this, I'll tell you this week. I don't, I don't throw myself in one camp. I think, uh, I think the, best way for, the best way to describe where I stand is probably the last two. I think this book is highly symbolic, but I think the majority of the book is talking about things that will take place in the future. But I do think that the church will see those things. I don't think the church will be raptured out before the tribulation begins. I think that we'll persevere through it. And the rapture of the church, the resurrection of the saints is the same event as when the second coming comes. So when Jesus comes, he resurrects the dead. And so essentially the church will be here during that period of time. So I think that there's a symbolic nature, but there's also a future nature, but a highly literal reading of it, I think is difficult. So the, so the second interpretation of this number is that it is a symbolic number. It is a symbolic number and it is a symbolic of a group of people. And that is where I would fall. I do not think that the 144,000 are a literal group of Jews who will be saved and they will be the only witnesses on earth. I think what is taking place here is a fulfillment of prophecy that dates all the way back to Ezekiel. But let me give you some reasons why I uh, kind of lean this way because this isn't, I wouldn't say it's a, it's not the most popular view in Christianity, but it's not like I'm the only person who holds this. There are some really smart Bible-believing people, scholars that hold this view. It probably just is not the most prominent view uh, in your average church. And the reason why is because most Bible seminaries teach uh, a rapture before the tribulation and a literal interpretation of most of these texts. Um, so here's the reason why I don't think it's a literal 144,000. I think that a literal reading is out of step with the entire book of Revelation. We've already seen how the lamb uh, is not really a lamb, it's Jesus. Um, we've also seen, we're gonna see that the dragon, uh, the, the, the devil is, is seen in this vision as a dragon. He's not really a dragon. Um, there's these four living creatures uh, that are seen different all throughout the Bible in different times. So, so maybe they don't really look like this. This is just the vision that John was given at the time. And so I think visions uh, by nature are highly symbolic and they're designed to really instill inside of God's people uh, a passion to want more of Jesus. And so I think that's probably the, the more accurate way to read this, that the numbers and the images are symbolic, they're not literal, and they communicate the size and the diversity of God's people, not the individual, individuality of God's people. I think that's what's happening here. I also think this because there is some issues in this text about what the tribes of Israel are following the events of the exodus, or not the exodus, the exile. Uh, and we worked through Isaiah, we kind of talked about this, but there was a great split after Solomon died and his son took the throne in Israel. The nation split into two. There was a civil war kind of, and there was a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. The southern kingdom had two tribes, Judah and Benjamin, and the northern kingdom had the rest of the 10 tribes. Well, the 10 tribes were wicked, and God sent Assyria into uh, Israel and completely wiped them out. So following 722, there is no more 10 northern tribes. They're not referenced anymore in scripture. They're, they're gone. 
Assyria decimated them. And the last two tribes, when Babylon came in and conquered them, and they, they were sent off to exile, when those two tribes eventually do return to Israel, you don't see this sense of tribes being mentioned anymore. It's all territories. There's no Judah and Benjamin and Issachar and, and, and Manasseh. It's Samaria. It's Galilee. That's how the Jews referred to themselves. So there's this sense that these tribes are kind of gone after the exile and at the time of Jesus. But the third big reason why I think that this isn't a literal reading and it's more uh, uh, symbolic is because that there is, there is a prophecy in Ezekiel 47 through 48 about the tribes of Israel returning to the land of Israel. And I think what John is seeing is the fulfillment of that previous vision that was given. So let me give it just some brief context of what this looks like. In Ezekiel chapter 47 and 48, which was some of your pre-homework reading before we got into Revelation, Ezekiel, at his time, the, the, the temple had fallen around 586, and so there is no more temple, and Ezekiel is taken in a vision on a tour of a new temple. And this temple's gorgeous. It's massive. It's like nine times larger than the last temple. I mean, it, it's, it's huge. And dimensions are given, and Ezekiel is told, go and measure the temple. Get context for how big and massive this thing is. But there's some peculiar things as Ezekiel goes on this tour of the temple. One, there's no holy of holies. There's no Ark of the Covenant. There's no table of showbread. There's no uh, um, altar of incense. There's no candlestick. There is an altar and there is a temple, but the furniture that, that essentially makes the temple function is gone. The other weird thing about it is that there are horizontal measurements of the temple, but there are no vertical measurements of the temple. So one interpretation of Ezekiel's vision is that this is a third temple that will be built sometime in the future before Jesus returns. Another interpretation is that this isn't a literal temple. It's symbolic of a future temple that God would build that is not a, hand, a temple built with the hands of man. And Stephen talks about this before he gets martyred. He declares, and one of the things, the reason why they stoned him and killed him, was that he declared, we as God's people have always made God live in these houses, but we all know God can't live live in houses made by man. If he's going to live somewhere, he's got to live in something that he built, not us. So here's what seems to be taking place. Oh, there's one other part of that vision. So the temple is rebuilt, and then the nations are called back. Sorry, not the nations, the tribes. And this is the important part. This, I forgot it, but this is the reason why I brought it up. So the temple is going to be rebuilt, but also the tribes, all the 12 tribes, they're going to be called back to Israel. So Ezekiel sees this vision. I, I see a temple being rebuilt in the last days. That's awesome, cool, beautiful temple. And then I see God calling all the tribes back to Israel. And he's seeing the naming of these tribes and they're given the specific allotment of land. And they're given, and, and here's, but here's the weird part. When Israel came into the promised land under Joshua, they were all given these different areas of land. Some were larger, some were smaller. But in Ezekiel's vision, all of the tribe's land is equal equal down to like a rectangular measurement. It's literally impossible to give the tribes an inheritance of land with the structure that Ezekiel saw because there's just not the land mass and the structures in the area of Israel for this vision to be fulfilled literally. So two things Ezekiel's seeing, a temple being rebuilt and he's also seeing the tribes being called back to Israel. 
Now, here's where it gets interesting. Isaiah 49.3, we studied this last year when we walked through Isaiah. Isaiah gives a prophecy about this man called the servant. Now, we know the servant is Jesus, but in Isaiah 49.3, we're told that the servant is Israel. The servant, Jesus, is Israel. Now, if our understanding that one of the things Jesus came to do was fulfill uh, the role of Israel that Israel couldn't fulfill because Israel was unfaithful in their covenant, God was faithful to his covenant, but Israel was unfaithful. How, do, how does the covenant fulfill it? How can God fulfill his promises to an unfaithful people? Well, he calls a remnant out of Israel and he makes that remnant, that person, that servant. He makes him the faithful servant. He makes him Israel. And God honors all of the, the, the promises to the ethnic Israel, to the person Israel, and that is Jesus. This is what Romans 9 is talking about that not all who are Israel are Israel. Not every ethnic, ethnicity or ethnic-born Jew is part of God's family. In order to become part of God's family, you do have to come and become a part of Israel, but Israel is no longer a nation. In Christ, Israel is Jesus. So what are we seeing here? What, what is John seeing? John is seeing the fulfillment of Ezekiel's vision that the tribes are coming back, but they're not coming back to a literal, physical Israel. The tribes are coming back to Jesus. Maybe you missed that. The tribes are coming back to Jesus. But here's the wild part. The temple that will be rebuilt it has already been built. It's you. Let the Bible interpret the Bible. What does Paul say about temple? He says in Corinthians, you are the temple. You're the temple. You're the temple. So the temple that Ezekiel saw he saw you, he saw, he, he saw the people of God, he saw believers in Jesus, he saw the fulfillment of God's promises to Israel through Jesus and all who trust in Jesus. So here's what's fascinating about what we're seeing here. We see John seeing Ezekiel's vision being fulfilled, the tribes are coming back, but watch this in verse four, he says he hears that the tribes are numbered, they're massive, and they're diverse. But what happens when he looks and actually sees this group? Do you remember in Revelation chapter five when John is in the, in the throne room and he's, he's weeping because no one is found worthy to open the seal and the scrolls? And then one of the elders says, hey, don't freak out, man. The lion is worthy. And John's like, the lion's worthy? The lion, yes, the lion's worthy. And he looks, but he doesn't, he hears a lion, but when he looks, he sees a lamb. The lamb is worthy. The lion was actually a lamb. John hears the 144,000 are these 12 tribes and they're coming back fulfilling Ezekiel's vision. But what does he see? Go to verse nine. He says, after this, I looked and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, 
from all tribes and peoples and languages standing before the throne and before the lamb clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hand and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the lamb. John heard a lion but saw a lamb. John heard that the tribes were coming back, but when he looked, he saw an Israel that was way more diverse than in any Israel that he could have imagined before because Israel is now Jesus and all who are in Jesus are part of Israel. Paul teaches that us Gentiles are grafted in. Grafted into what? Grafted into Israel grafted into the true Israel that is Jesus. Some of you are like, oh, hold on one second now. Are you saying that the church has replaced Israel? Nope, not what I'm saying at all. What I'm saying is that Jesus replaced Israel. Jesus became Israel, and now all of us who want to be part of God's family partake in that long history of Israel because Jesus was Jewish. Folks, we're grafted in, and the promises are being fulfilled, not just to us, they're being fulfilled to him, and through him, they come to us. And so I think what we're seeing here is a fulfillment of all these prophecies from Ezekiel and from Isaiah of Jesus doing the heavy lifting and all of the work to bring the nations back up under Israel, but when they come, they become part of Christ, not some ethnic connection to some country. It's bigger than that. And if you look through the New Testament, one of the things that Paul drills in over and over and over is that in Christ there is now no more Jew, Gentile, slave, free. In Christ, this chasm that existed between Israel, God's people, and the Gentiles, the nations, it has been closed by Christ. He has fulfilled everything that needed to be fulfilled and he has become the great true Israel and now he is calling the nations unto himself, not some geographic location or having to be birthed into uh, some Jewish family. Now you are being called into Christ and you are part of his family. It's really fascinating the way that the Old Testament prophets saw these prophecies fulfilled and the way that Jesus is now fulfilling those prophecies in himself. It's, it's fascinating, it's beautiful because it's an invitation that us, people who were, we had no family, no connection, we were Gentiles, we were just among the nations, we were called to become part of this family. And it fills the promise of Abraham. Do you remember when God told Abraham? He said, I'm gonna bless the nations through you. God is fulfilling his word. He is doing what he said he would do to Abraham. He is blessing the nations through Israel. So who are the 144,000 that God will mark before the great tribulation? I think they're end time believers marked with his protection. God's judgment is not gonna touch these people. They are unbelievably diverse and they wanna just worship the lamb. That's all they want is to just worship the lamb. That's what they're about. Now let's go into verse 11. 
It says the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures and they fell on their faces before the throne and they worshiped God saying, amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might to our God forever and ever, amen. The one of the elders addressed me and he said, who, who, who are these clothed in white robes and from where have they come? And I said to them, sir, you know, that's what you say, okay? If an angel asks you a question or a heavenly elder says, hey, what's this? You just put it right back on them. You say, well, you know, I know, but you know, just you say it so I know that you know. He said to him, sir, you know, and he said to me, who, who is this great multitude? These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. These are the believers coming out of the great tribulation and they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple and he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. And they shall hunger no more and neither shall they thirst anymore. The sun shall not strike them nor any scorching heat for the lamb is in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. And he will guide them to springs of living water and God will wipe away every tear from their eye. Now, does that sound familiar? It should because this is library or database material pulled from Isaiah 49. Who, and, and, and that prophecy was to Israel. My people, the remnant people, the ones who were saved at the very end time, I'm gonna wipe away every tear from their eye. They're never gonna hunger anymore. They're never gonna thirst anymore. And now you see this being fulfilled not just to an ethnic group of people, but the Israel people of God. Which is how Paul talks about the church in Galatians 3. He said, you are the true Israel of God. James says in chapter uh, one, he says, uh, he writes his letter to the 12 tribes across the land. There was an understanding in the early church that what God did in Jesus fulfilled everything that he promised would be fulfilled in Israel. And now the nations are being called to participate in Jesus, the true Israel. And there's this beautiful blending of prophecy and understanding of what God was doing in his people that's not just tied to an ethnicity, it's tied to a person and his name is Jesus. That's the beauty of what's going on here. And these believers who persevere through the great tribulation, they're not touched with the wrath of God, but they are persecuted for their faith. They persevere through the great tribulation and these are the people who, fulfill, who, who experience these great promises of God. Now let's go to verse one in chapter eight. We're just gonna get into first five verses in chapter eight because this closes out the seals. So that vision pivots and we're back to the lamb opening the seventh seal. Now I think this is probably, but just guessing here, this is probably about three and a half years in the tribulation because the trumpets are about to begin. We'll talk about what trumpets are here in a minute. Uh, but I, I think we're, we're just about halfway through the tribulation at this point when you start seeing this vision. When the lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. And then I saw the seven angels who stand before God and I saw seven trumpets were given to them and another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer. 
and he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne and the throne, excuse me, and the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God and the hand of the angel. So what are these prayers in this altar up in heaven? These are the prayers we read about back in Revelation chapter five when the martyrs are crying, oh God, how long is this gonna happen? In chapter six, when the martyrs are crying out, oh God, how long? until you avenge us. These are the prayers here, and the answer to the prayer is in verse five. The angel took the censer, filled it with fire from the altar. So he took the prayers that were in this altar, he filled it with fire from the altar, and he threw it down to the earth. And there were peals of thunder and rumblings and flashes of lightning and an earthquake. So the lamb breaks the seventh seal. There's silence for about a half an hour all kinds of interpretations on what that silence means. If we're just going strictly with a library reference for this, I think that this is a call back to Joshua chapter six, when the people of God came into the promised land, but it was conquered, and there was this one city, Jericho, and God told the people, I want you to conquer this city, but I want you to do it with trumpet blasts. I want you to circle the city seven times, don't say a word. Everyone hush, quiet, don't talk to your neighbor, don't, don't whisper, just be quiet, not a single word, because as soon as we're finished circling this place like God told us, we're gonna blow the trumpets and the walls are gonna fall down. I think this is a call back to that. This is an anticipation of the trumpets beginning to blow. That there's not just one city, Jericho, with these walls, and inside these walls is just filled with all kinds of sin and debauchery. Now the entire world is a Jericho with high walls that think they can be protected from the Lamb's wrath, but they're, 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 they're fooling themselves because the moment the trumpet blows, the wrath of God is gonna start getting poured out. I think that's what the silence signifies. But before the trumpets, I wanna draw your attention to the way that God answered these prayer, answers the prayers of the saints from Revelation five and six. I want you to get this imagery in your head. The angel takes the prayers, he mixes it with fire from the altar, and he slings it to the earth, high lifestyle. Let that burn into your brain because that's the way your God answers prayers. Oh God, please, 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 please. That's not the way the Bible communicates the God of the universe answering your prayers. And he's slinging fire down to earth to answer your prayers. That's how our God answers prayers. Now let's pause for a second because we just went through a lot of material. We need to breathe and reflect on this because what we have just learned is that our God seals his people. But here's the wild thing about this. He doesn't just seal his people who will go through the tribulation. We're told by Paul in 2 Corinthians 1.22 that all Christians are sealed by God the moment they get saved with the filling of the Holy Spirit. You, all of you right now, you are already sealed by God. 
This is something he will do, but it is something he is already doing. So if we're gonna just take this, we're gonna take this concept, that if God can protect his people in the greatest end time tribulation that you could possibly imagine or read about, why do you think that your God cannot protect you through whatever situation you're going through right now? He'll do it there, why will he not do it right here? Why can't we live with this attitude that man, the Lord has got my six covered and I will live in peace until he calls me home. And the moment he calls me home, it will be my time to go home. <sighs> because that's how I see these guys living. And at the end of it, they're not saying, Lord, why'd you, why'd you do us like that? Like, why, why'd you make us go through all of that? I don't go through all that. No, what are they doing? You're worthy. All the honor, all the power, all the glory. You saw it. I didn't see it. I wouldn't have called this for my life. I wouldn't have picked this for me. I wouldn't have gone through that process. I wouldn't have lost my legs. I wouldn't have been through this situation. I wouldn't have given, my, I wouldn't have given myself cancer. I would have not gone this. I, I, I wouldn't have picked this process for my life. I wouldn't have gone to jail. I wouldn't have done it this way. But you saw that was the only way to wake me up. I was heading to hell. I was eternally damned. And you saw that the best way to save my life was to put me in jail. Thank you. Praise Praise Jesus! That's the way he works. It's not how you would work, but it's how he works. I'm not saying God gave you cancer, but I am saying that he's king of the universe and he allows certain things for his glory and not your good because he wants you eternally changed, not temporarily happy. So sometimes that process means loss or tribulation or things you wouldn't have picked for yourself because he's got a bigger picture in mind than just five, 10, 15 years for you. He's thinking more long-term than your retirement plan. And so what we're seeing here is a God who seals his people for his protection. We also see a God who fulfills all of his promises. We're told in Hebrews that he is a God who is always faithful to fulfill his promises. And if God fulfills his promises in that global scale at the end of the age, then why in the world are we so timid about him fulfilling his promises now? Why are we so shy about sharing the gospel? Why are we so nervous about the way people think we will look? He promised you that no one would like you if you followed him. Why are you trying so hard to make people like you? They will hate you for what you believe. So this God seals his people, he fulfills his word, but he answers prayer. And that's the thing that I want us to leave with today. I want the pictures of Revelation chapter seven burn into your memory about the way that he works with his people, not just in a coming tribulation, but actually right now among his people. He answers prayer right now. He won't answer, he, it's not like he's just sitting around waiting, okay, well we need for things to get really rough before I'm gonna listen to my people's prayers. No, he wants you to pray right now. He wants to answer your prayers right now. So here's our takeaway from Revelation 7. This is absolutely things that are coming to the earth, but God will protect his people, fulfill his word, and answer prayer, but it is not strictly reserved for those people. It is for us, his people, right now. God hears the prayers of his people, and he answers the prayers of his people like sending meteors down to earth. He always fulfills his word. When he says something he's gonna do, he will always do it. This God, 
seals his people and marks them as his own possession. So stop living like this world owns you. Stop letting this world disciple you in their ideology because you have a different stamp on your forehead. You belong to the lamb, not the beast. Let's pray. Hello again, it's Pastor Marshall, and I just wanted to say thank you for listening to this message. If you want to hear other messages or maybe find out more about our church, you can visit redhillschurch.com. From there, you'll find links to our social media pages, message archive, and ways you can support the ministry work. Thanks again for spending time with us, and God bless.